Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 107, The Death of Joan. So, last week Calais finally fell to the English, and for all intents and purposes, Edward's Great Cressy campaign was finally over. Edward immediately threw all the French citizens out, made a big pile of their ill-gotten gains, and invited English merchants to come and settle. For the next 150 years or so, Calais was to be a little bit of England in France. Unlike Aquitaine, for example, which was like a little bit of France in France. For Philip, the landless citizens were a brand of his shame, and he did his level best to find them new homes and help them out. Now by September 1347, both sides were ready for a nice cup of tea and a bit of a break, and a nine-month truce was duly signed. There was a walkover for the English, of course, who remained in possession, and the Flemish, who retained almost complete independence. Edward, after 15 months on the road, finally set off home, where he proceeded to party. Big time. Christmas, spent in Guildford in the south of England, was something of a hooli in the Edwardian fashion, and who can blame the lad? He was 35, he'd just covered himself in glory, the walls of the Tower of London bulged slightly from the pressure of the rich lords and kings, squeezed in there, waiting for ransom. As one chronicler put it, it seemed that a new sun had arisen for the English because of the abundance of peace, then plenitude of good, and the glory of the victor. Another significant event was the departure of Edward's daughter Joan, just fourteen. 
Little Joan had been betrothed at the age of eleven to Pedro of Castile as part of a Castilian alliance, and the time had come for her to go. Now, basically, this was the equivalent in the modern day of your child emigrating to the other side of the world. Really, that was it. You were not going to see her for a long time, if at all. So the poppet was laden with kit. Her trousseau apparently filled one entire ship. Her wedding dress was made with over 150 metres of silk. Can that be true? That is a lot of dress. Anyway, her ship was luxuriously kitted out with its own chapel, covered with the finest tapestries, and at her side was the Castilian minstrel, Graffiaf de Giville, sent to her by her 14-year-old lover, Pedro, to accompany his bride. Pedro was to be known as Pedro the Cruel when he grew up, by the way. At Portsmouth Docks, tearfully Mum checked her ticket and kissed her daughter goodbye. Dad told her a few rubbish jokes like the one about the stick, and then made sure that Robert Bourchier, the leader of the party, knew what his orders were, and that he was quite clear that if any harm came to his little girl, Bourchier would be toast. And then, off Joan went on her adventure, surrounded by a hundred hard-faced, battle-scarred, don't-kick-sand-in-my-face archers. They turned up at Bordeaux to be greeted by an overwhelmed mayor, Raymond de Biscal. Raymond's jaw was tapping gently against his knees, as he watched this vision of wealth and opulence disembark, maybe with Joan wearing her red velvet suit, with twenty-four buttons of silver and enamel, or maybe a brown silk dress with a base of powdered gold and embroidered with a pattern of circles, each enclosing a lion as a symbol of monarchy. Whatever 150 metres of silk, Joan had decided to just throw on that morning. Despite his amazement, Raymond warned the party that a great sickness had arrived in town and that they should leave. He was basically ignored. She was a princess, after all. But soon, the party began to notice what was happening around them. This wasn't your average, commoner garden, run-of-the-mill spot of ill health. This was meltdown. Hundreds of bodies were being tipped hurriedly into unmarked graves. The smell of death and decay followed them to the castle, This wasn't just an affliction of the grubby townsfolk. All around them, doors of houses swung open on their hinges, the houses deserted because all their inhabitants were dead. Around them, people died, horribly disfigured by hideous boils and what looked like gangrene. And as members of her retinue began to die too, on the 20th of August 1348, Robert Bourchier tried to save his precious charge and Joan's party made a run for it to the clean air of a little village called Laremo. On the way to universal horror, Bourchier himself died in agony and pain from the same hideous disease. Now while she was hiding, hoping for salvation in Laremo, Joan received three visitors. The first was a small, secretive but gregarious rodent, Rattus Rattus, the Black Rat. The Black Rat had arrived in England with the Romans and was all over the place by this time. Nowadays, the Brown Rat has driven poor old Rattus Rattus out, but in those days the Black Rat thrived, because unlike the burrowing, bigger, more aggressive Brown Rat, the Black Rat loved the thatched roofs, wooden beams and straw-covered floors that were the medieval norm. Which was to be a shame for Joan and 40% of the population of Europe, 
because as the rat shuffled around looking for a bite to eat on Joan's dark chamber floor, the second visitor leapt from rat to human. This was the flea. The poor flea would have been itself in something of a poor state, ravenously hungry and thirsty, because for some reason its alimentary canal was blocked and it couldn't keep anything down. So it desperately and voraciously attacked everything it could find, in this case, a bit of little Joan's exposed skin. But the same thing happened all over again, despite greedily puncturing her skin and sucking out the girl's blood, just couldn't keep its meal down and regurgitated the blood into the wound it had just made. Which brings us to the third visitor in this little drama, a tiny bacteria called Yersinia pestis. This clever little beast has already had a massive impact on history through the plague of Justinian, which fatally weakened the Roman Empire in the 6th century. Although in Western Europe its relationship with the black rat was the key factor in its spread, Yersinia pestis was quite clever enough to use other animals if available, the marmot in Russia for example. It played a constant balancing act. Many of the black rats died from Yersinia pestis, just as humans were to but enough survived as carriers to help the bacteria on its mission. What the poor flea didn't know was that it was Yersinia pestis that built up inside its body and produced a lump of material which blocked the flea's esophagus, causing it to regurgitate its meal of blood, along with, incidentally, Yersinia pestis from the flea's gut. Which was the whole point, of course. This was Yersinia pestis's launch system. Once inside the girl's protective layer of skin, Yersinia pestis made its way to Joan's lymph nodes. Its big weapon is its ability to avoid and destroy a host's immune system. So as Joan was walking and talking in the little village, hoping against hope that she had escaped, the bacteria was working away in her lymph nodes, growing, multiplying. We don't know from which form of the plague Joan died, because there were three types, and the chroniclers didn't tell us the details of poor Joan's final agonies. The classic was bubonic plague. If this is the variant that did for the poor poppet, after two to six days of meeting the flea, Joan would have started to feel ill. Maybe she developed a fever, but at some point it would have hit her hard. Hideous black boils would have appeared in her armpits and groin, often the size of an apple, hard and uncompromising as her lymph nodes swelled up, full of the battle between the immune system and Yersinia pestis. Her head would have ached unbearably, her body would have been racked by chills and fever, and within five or six days of hideous suffering, she would have died. Or maybe Yersinia pestis infected Joan's blood, not just her lymphatic system. In a way, this septicemic plague was the kindest way to die from Yersinia pestis, but the most terrifying to those around, because it often gave absolutely no warning, spreading through the blood until, without any symptoms at all, the victim suffered a massive seizure, maybe with many organs such as spleen and brain failing, and then they died without warning. Often even the classic buboes had not had time to form. It was a feature of this form of the plague, the speed with which people died. People went to sleep one night feeling fine and simply didn't wake up. So how do you prepare for that? The last would have had nothing to do with the flea, 
there was also a pneumonic form, which was spread from people to people by coughing and sneezing, and by the victim breathing Yersinia pestis into their lungs. So maybe this was how Joan contracted the disease, nothing to do with the flea at all. Pneumonic plague was even more virulent than the classic bubonic plague, even more deadly with higher death rates and killing within two to three days. Sometimes the buboes would appear, sometimes not. But if Joan had caught this variant, she would have struggled desperately to breathe as the disease attacked her lungs. She would have been racked by vomiting and seen with horror as her vomit turned red with blood. Her fingers might have turned black and crabbed with gangrene as blood vessels became blocked with coagulated blood. There's even a chance that, royal as she was, Joan died alone. Everything we hear and read about the plague speaks of the disgust, degradation and horror it brought with it. Soaked in sweat, excrement, spittle, urine and blood, victims stank, unless they were lucky enough to find a hero to look after them. Maybe even Joan lost her senses and danced and screamed uncontrollably, as some did. But however it happened, it was not a good way to die. By the 2nd of September, 1348, Edward's daughter, who had set out to make a new life with Pedro in the Spanish kingdom of Castile, was dead. Her father wrote to Pedro's father, Alfonso, Your magnificence knows how we sent our daughter to Bordeaux, en route for your territories in Spain. But see with what intense bitterness of heart we have to tell you this. Destructive death, who seizes young and old alike, sparing no one and reducing rich and poor to the same level, has lamentably snatched from both of us our dearest daughter, whom we loved best of all, as her virtues demanded. No fellow human being could be surprised if we were inwardly desolated by the sting of this bitter grief, for we are humans too. But we, who have placed our trust in God and our life between his hands, where he has held it closely through many great dangers, we give thanks to him that one of our own family, free of all stain, whom we have loved with our life, has been sent ahead to heaven to reign amongst the choirs of virgins, where she can gladly intercede for our offences before God himself. So maybe in a way this is a formal official letter, but it does show something of a father's grief which was to be repeated many thousands of times. So looking at back at what I've written, I feel a bit guilty about talking about the death of a young girl, but the reason I did this was because the thing that strikes me about the Black Death is how remarkably difficult it is, oddly, to make it all in any way real or immediate. There is a blizzard of statistics, a blizzard to which I fully intend to subject you over this week and next. There are tales of confusion and social change, of bravery and cowardice and scholarship, laying out the daily life as the storm hit the medieval world. But at this distance, it's quite hard to recreate the sheer horror of it all. The plague wouldn't be described as the Black Death until much later, maybe until 17th century in England, when it could have arrived as a term to differentiate itself from the Great Plague of 1665 but it hit a medieval world which was spectacularly ill-equipped to cope with it, despite the constant threat and presence of death and violence in society. Although, in fact, the plague was not new, as the plague of Justinian, it had torn the throat out of the Roman Empire in the 6th century. And incidentally, if you want an outstanding description of the plague, go straight to Robin Pearson's History of Byzantium podcast. Quite superb episode. <laughs> 
but since the time of Justinian it had been absent from Europe, and Europe had forgotten the horror. The plague's natural home was in fact in Central Asia, and in particular it could be that its home was specifically the great salt lake of Isik Kul, where in 1338 and 9 there was an abnormally high death rate, and memorial stones that speak of plague. From there, for some reason, it suddenly spread out across the globe. Something must have happened to make the rat population move. Maybe drought or flood, who knows. But the black rat left, searching for new places to live, and with it went the plague. In Europe, vague rumours circulated of hideous death and destruction in the exotic lands to the east, brought by traders and travellers. As an Arabic chronicler reported, India was depopulated. Tartary, Mesopotamia, Syria, Armenia were covered with dead bodies. The Kurds fled in vain to the mountains. In Caramania and Caesarea, none were left alive. But it all felt so far away. God's punishment for the unbelievers. No one in Europe worried that this held any relevance to them. In the Crimea, in 1346, 85,000 people died. And in their suffering, the Tartars decided someone must be responsible, and that someone must be one of those weird, unbelieving Christians. So, in the market, a brawl happened to start with a Christian merchant. The brawl turned into a riot, the riot into a campaign of persecution, and the Christians fled to their safe haven at a redoubt called Kaffa. And there they were besieged. And it's here that we get a first example of biological warfare. The Tartars catapulted plague-ridden bodies into the city to give the Christians a taste of their own suffering. As it happens, it was the besiegers who suffered most, decimated by plague that tore through them, which gave the Genoese merchants inside Kaffa the chance to make a dash for it, and they legged it to their ships and out into the Mediterranean, safety and home. But, of course, they had an unseen passenger. As they died at their oars in 1348, the plague ships put into ports in Sicily and Italy. Of course, as soon as the inhabitants saw the condition of the crew, they drove them off, and by so doing, unwittingly helped spread the plague faster, as the ships desperately looked for sanctuary. And so the plague swept through Italy and France. It just so happens that the accounts of the plague in Italy, by witness such as Boccario, give a much more graphic description of the plague and its impact than do the English chroniclers. Now clearly, I don't have time to cover Europe as well as England, but of all the passages, there is one much repeated which stands out. The mortality in Siena began in May. It was a cruel and horrible thing. It seemed that almost everyone became stupefied seeing the pain. It is impossible for the human tongue to recount the awful truth father abandoned child, wife husband, one brother another, for this illness seemed to strike through breath and sight. And so they died. None could be found to bury the dead for money or friendship. And as soon as ditches were filled, more were dug. I, Agnolo de Toro, called the fat, buried my five children with my own hands. And so many died that all believed it was the end of the world." Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In England, as the plague crept closer through France, again, rumours would have reached the ports and cities. But the attitude was along the lines of, well, they're a sinful lot over there. They probably deserve it. Schadenfreude was alive and well and living in the Middle Ages. The same happened later on when England was racked with plague. The Scots celebrated and gathered an army on the border to come and bring death destruction to the English in their pain and defencelessness, along with the principle of not kicking a man when he's down unless you can kick him good and hard. But it was a mistake. The plague did so love it when people gathered together in large groups. The Scottish army was decimated and fled in terror. By tradition, then, the plague came to England via a ship that docked at the small town of Melcombe Regis, now part of the vast urban sprawl that is the mighty cosmopolis of Weymouth. It came in August 1348, before Joan's death. But despite the fact that the plague had been raging in France and all over Europe, do not for a moment imagine that England was prepared for what hit it. Not that there was a lot it could do, but we have to visualise small villages with relatively little contact from the outside, getting snippets of disconnected and conflicting rumours. Innuendo, rumour. You have to think the attitude of most people would be, well, it couldn't happen here. The Black Death took a little while to get really warmed up, but certainly by October 1348 it was rife in the West Country. By 1349 the fire raged brightly. There is some evidence that the plague wasn't a fan of cold weather and there is something of a slowdown in its progress over winter, but as the weather warmed up, so did the plague. It slid down first into Devon and Cornwall in 1348 and then relatively slowly along the south coast and north into Oxfordshire by March 1349. And then it went potty. And as the weather warmed up, it began to spring up all over the place simultaneously and during 1349, every village and town in England felt its heavy hand. The Black Death hit a society poorly equipped in many ways to understand and combat it. For the rest of this episode, let's look at the state of medieval medicine and so on, and then next week we'll come back to the plague specifically and chart its spread through England. The main point about science, of course, is that there's no accepted germ theory, until the 19th century, so Yersinia pestis was completely hidden from medieval sight. So, two things about that then. First of all, the way medieval humanity interpreted the plague is completely different to the way we would do so now. And secondly, they weren't set up to respond medically. As far as medieval man was concerned, the biggest cause of illness was God. Disease generally might be a test from God, it might be a way of purifying the soul or punishing the individual or society. The scale of the Black Death, though, gave man pause for thought about the kind of God who visited punishment on this scale. But the main response was, oh dear, we have missed up, God is miffed, let's mend our ways. And so we see all over the traditional response, demands from the clergy or everyone to reject sin, offerings, donations to chantries for prayers for the soul, and so on. 
The apogee of all this was the phenomenon of the flagellants. Originating in Eastern Europe, the flagellants toured Europe, including a brief period in England. Their gig essentially was to work themselves up to a collective frenzy of self-flagellation carried out by a heavy scourge with three or four leather things, each tipped by iron spikes. Mark you, iron spikes. As the plague grew, the number of flagellants grew with it, and despite the hideousness of the whole affair, it is a major mass movement. For example, 5,300 flagellants visited the French town of Tournai. To give medieval man his due, there was a reaction against all of this excess. The flagellants were excluded from some areas. Philip VI refused to allow them to get any further than Troyes, and they finally appear in England only once in 1349 and are then expelled. And finally, the Pope outlawed them in October 1349. If God was the main source of disease or illness, he was not quite the only one. Another theory was based on the movements of the heavenly bodies. Philip of France again asked the University of Paris why all this was happening, and the response was an astrological one, the conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter and Mars. There were more parochial explanations, and as ever the outsider became a target. In England, of course, the Jews had already been expelled, but throughout Europe, the Jews were accused of poisoning wells and causing the plague and were subjected to a wave of violence. In 1350, the Jews of the Hansa towns in Germany were walled up alive in their houses and left to die of starvation. It was a wave of persecution that only died down as the plague did. Wherever illness came from, medieval medicine was based on equal levels of ignorance and therefore quite unable to respond. Medical theory was based on the work of two men, Garland and Hippocrates, he of the eponymous oath. Basically, the idea is that the entire universe, including people, is made up of four elements. Fire, water, earth and air. These are reflected in the human body by four corresponding elements. Yellow bile, phlegm, black bile and blood. Disease happens when these four elements get out of kilter, and so action needs to be taken to get them back into kilter. Sharpish. Diagnosis, therefore, tended to rely on some pretty gross methods, evaluating the humours in your subject. What does your urine smell like? What does your blood taste like? That sort of thing. Medieval doctors might have been pretty useless, but it's difficult to envy them. Getting the balance right then leads to the kind of treatments we associate with the Middle Ages, bloodletting of course being the most common, with the idea that reducing the amount of blood will re-establish the right balance. Treatment, though, very easily and quickly began to look like fortune-telling and sorcery. So, for example, here's some medical diagnostic advice. Take the name of the patient, the name of the messenger sent to summon you, and the name of the day upon which the messenger first came to you. Join all their letters together, and if an even number result, the patient will not escape. If the number be odd, he will recover. Ladies and gentlemen, don't try this at home. As a result, the relationship between church and medical profession was not an easy one. In 1215, the Lateran Council forbade priests engaging in any activity likely to draw blood. Anatomy and dissecting bodies is regarded as unholy, and dissection was forbidden until the 15th century. So what this meant was that the medical profession split into two, the physic or doctor, 
and then the surgeon, the one who was involved in cutting. The qualified physician is relatively rare, and usually attached to a lord's household, so the chances of your ordinary Joe getting hold of one is a bit limited. Though it has to be said that given what they've been taught, that could well improve your chances. Alternatively, you could go to a hospital. Now, way back when, I'm pretty sure I remember an episode where we talked about hygiene, debunking the notion that medieval people thought nothing of being dirty. In case I remember wrongly, let me repeat myself. Medieval people were just as concerned as we are to keep themselves clean, to keep their houses clean and tidy. They didn't understand why it was so medically important, and they faced many more challenges than we do in making this happen, particularly in towns. And there's no doubt, therefore, that the medieval world was a good deal dirtier than the modern-day one. But, at a personal level, people washed, made themselves respectable as possible. The same applies to hospitals. Here, you would be put to bed in a room with a few other people, with the floors washed regularly, with the floors washed daily, and the sheets regularly cleaned, the patient's hair washed, and all that sort of thing. Treatment, though, is something of a nightmare. First of all, the physician will give you a preparative, something to get you ready. Given that we're trying to get things back in kilter, he'll then give you a purgative, something really, really nasty to get the excess humour out of you, which will depend on the disease. The type of which will depend on the disease. So, how's about dung beetles and crickets fried in oil? Or the immortal heads of seven bats? Just not good. The other side of the profession then was surgeons, The royal household, therefore, has a royal physician and a royal surgeon. Surgeons range from the barber surgeon, whose skill, therefore, is pretty much restricted to cutting things, to the experienced medical profession. They deal with the bloodletting stuff, since it requires cutting, but do a wide range of other things, cauterising and bandaging wounds, sewing up flesh, lancing boils, even opening up the brain. But the long and short is that if you let a surgeon cut deeply into you, you're probably a dead man. Hence the fact that disease is a greater killer in war than is death on the battlefield. And hence the fact that caesareans are not unknown, but survivals of the mother after a caesarean pretty much are. There are pockets of what we might consider expertise. John of Arden, for example, was a famous surgeon in England because he developed a clear understanding of the importance of cleanliness and used effective anaesthetics. Before we finish... There are other diseases which might not have had the PR and media exposure of the Black Death, but which gave the medieval world more consistent pain and trouble. First is leprosy, and if one of the features of the Black Death was the filth and degradation that it came with, this was even more true of leprosy. Numbers-wise it couldn't compete, but hideous suffering-wise it was right up there. And until 1348, it's without doubt the most terrifying disease that people could imagine. Without wanting to state the obvious, in a society where you couldn't explain why such a disease should happen, it was inevitable that there would be an association with the way leprosy made you look and the condition of the sufferer's soul. What I'm trying to say is that if this was God's punishment, you must have done something pretty bad to get leprosy. So afraid were people that they took no chances. If you had any kind of skin disease, whether or not it was leprosy, you could be treated in the same way. Specifically, this meant you were shunned by society, forced to wear a cloak and hood, and to ring a bell wherever you went. Much the same as bankers are being asked to do now. 
you would be regarded almost as living dead because that's how the disease progressed, unstoppable in those days. Eventually it would look as though your fingers and toes had fallen off. Often the nose will collapse, leaving a gaping wound in the face, leading to blindness and eventually death. In 1346, Edward III created a number of leper hospitals just outside London. Now you might think that was lovely of him, and maybe it was. But there's a very strong suspicion that the main reason he did that was to get lepers out of London and into somewhere where he knew where they were. Leprosy by 1400, as it happens, was well in decline. Tuberculosis, on the other hand, was on the rise, since it was particularly dangerous in urban conditions. Another disease was typhoid, often called camp fever, which gives a kind of a hint where it struck most hard, i.e. in the unsanitary conditions of the army camp, especially besieging a town and therefore not on the move. In the Middle Ages, though, the chroniclers describe our whole mess of diseases that we can't identify anymore, or diseases that England doesn't suffer from today. The simplest example of that would be malaria, which used to be endemic around the marshes in Lincolnshire, Norfolk and Kent. And finally, there are some modern diseases that they clearly didn't suffer from. Syphilis and cholera are two good examples. Well, I think that's enough nastiness for one week. Next time, we'll see how the Black Death progresses through England and how the political elite reacts and the impacts it has. I say next time because next week I'm walking the wall so there won't be any episode next week, but it will be back on the week after. Finally, I've got some donators to thank for their kind generosity. So thanks to Terry, Stephen, Rebecca, David, Philip, Robert, Bill and Dan. Till next time then everyone, good luck and have a great week.